Good evening, everyone. I think uh, Ian and Jenny deserve a round of applause for reading that long reading. We probably could have broken it for three people to do, I think. Uh, it was pretty long, so well done. Uh, but please have your Bible open because uh, I can't deal with everything across Acts chapter 13, uh, and there's a lot of verses there. And if you've got it open in front of you, you can uh, keep dipping in and out of the story where I get to. But I hope you remember back to last year when we looked at the first half of the book of Acts. So uh, I just remembered, I kept forgetting this this morning, I've got control here. So Byron can just listen to the sermon, he's fine. I've got control, there you go. But I hope you remember we, uh, we looked at two large books of the Bible last year. We looked at the book of Acts, we looked at the book of Romans, and both of them we only got halfway through. Uh, and then we're coming back this year. Now we're going to deal with the second half of the book of Acts, later in the year, second half of the book of Romans. So that's the plan. But I hope you remember last year how we saw the, how the book of Acts is for the Christian, uh, our family history. It's like our ancestry.com results. Has anyone ever done one of those things where you've searched for your family tree and all that sort of thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, this, this is for the Christian, our family tree. Uh, this is where it all began. That's what makes the book of Acts so wonderful. Uh, and if you think about it, I think it's incredible. The growth of Christianity is actually a miracle of history. Uh, secular historians struggle to explain how the Christian church survived, let alone spread and, and grew and, and took over the world. Uh, if you think about one man who never moved out of the tiny little backwater of the world where he was... He empowered 11 largely uneducated men from that backwater and yet within 100 years they changed the world. That's actually an incredible thing. And what's even more incredible is it wasn't shaped by military conquest, wasn't shaped by some incredible advertising campaign, it wasn't a government program. Humanly speaking, there is no reason why Christianity survived, let alone spread and took over the world. So how did it happen? Uh, I was reading a non-Christian historian talking about the history of the church, the spread of Christianity, and he said, in the end, it wasn't primarily because of political campaigns or great strategies or advertising. This is what he said. Uh, he said, the primary means of it, the church's growth, was through the united and motivated efforts of the Christian believers who invited their friends, relatives and neighbours to share the good news. Now, when he writes that, he writes it with a tone of amazement. He says, how amazing is this? Because every other movement that's spread around the world has been done by the sword, you know, by war or, or by politics. He says, how amazing that, that, that Christianity did this, but we know from the book of Acts that is how it's meant to work. That is how God has chosen to save the world. God takes ordinary human beings like you and me and he uses us to spread the message of salvation and offer forgiveness to the whole world. And the book of Acts is the start of the story. Uh, I've been really excited about getting back into Acts this term. I hope you get excited by it. That's actually my, my mission statement today in the sermon is that you'll get excited about the book of Acts. That's one of my, my goals because really the purpose of the book of Acts is to fire you up as a Christian and just say how amazing is our God that he has done this in the world and he is continuing to work in our world. So of course we're picking up the story again halfway through. So I want to sort of like as we start... Do you know how when you watch Survivor or any other TV, you know, previously on Survivor or last week on Survivor? Well, this is last year in the book of Acts. That's what I've got to do now. And the key thing, I want to go through those first 12 chapters really, really quickly to get everyone up to speed. The key thing that has already happened in the book of Acts is that Jesus has risen from the dead. That's not just the key thing that's happened in the book of Acts. That's the key thing that's happened in all of history. 
Jesus has risen from the dead. Uh, That is the event that changes everything. And the book of Acts starts with that. And it starts with the risen Jesus appearing to his disciples. And he gives his disciples a mission. You see it in chapter 1, verse 8. So if you're a note taker, make that point. Chapter 1, verse 8 is the key verse that explains what the book of Acts is about. This is what Jesus said. He said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. I just want you, for a moment, visualise, put yourself in the shoes of those 11 men. It was only 11 by then, because Judas was gone. Those 11 men, at that point, Jesus says, I'm giving you a job. Be my witnesses. Tell people about me. Invite people to come and believe in me and be saved like you've been. And I want you to start at home here in Jerusalem. That sounds all right. Then I want you to go to Judea and Samaria And then, I I don't know, how about taking it to the ends of the earth? Just put yourself in in the shoes of those 11 men. He's asking us to go to the ends of the earth and tell people about Jesus. And if you think about it, that was an impossible task. But Jesus says, you won't be doing it alone. Do you see there? He says, you'll do it with the help of the Holy Spirit. As you tell people about me, God will be at work through his Holy Spirit, convicting people, bringing them to faith in Jesus. And so we saw the start of all that when we looked at chapters 1 to 12 last year. So they started preaching in Jerusalem. And what happened? Who remembers? It was amazing. They started preaching and thousands of people became Christians every day. So imagine they they gathered in a building like this maybe. And after day one, they said, better knock it down. We need a 20,000 seat auditorium. That's not how they worked. They met in small groups all over the countryside. But it was amazing. The gospel just grew and grew and grew. But it was still in Jerusalem. And it was still just the Jews just there. They still hadn't gone out. They hadn't followed Jesus' command. Then something happened. Something forced them to go out and leave Jerusalem. Does anyone remember what it was? Yes, they started killing them. That's what it was, yeah. So Stephen, the first Christian martyr, absolute hero of the faith, got stoned to death for his faith. Then they ran a sword through James, the first of the apostles to be killed. So um, that meant they fled. They, they, They were forced to go. It wasn't like they came up with a mission plan and they went and talked to CMS and said, oh, I wonder if we can go out from Jerusalem. It's like, we're going to die if we stay here. So they, they fled, other than just the apostles stayed. But as they went, what did they do? They kept telling people about Jesus. They could not stop talking, because if you have the most important news there's ever been, you share it even when you're running for your life. And so, in those first 12 chapters that we looked at last year, we saw Acts 1-8 to start to be fulfilled. The gospel had gone to Jerusalem, It had gone to Samaria, it had gone to all Judea, and wherever it went, people were believing in Jesus, people were being saved. But there was still just the little matter of the ends of the earth, still just that problem. Uh, The Christian faith, still at that point on a world scale, was irrelevant. It was just a little group of Jews in that little part of the world that no one particularly cared about. Then two things happened. This is going to be interactive at this point. What are the two things that happened? Two things that actually changed world history. Anyone remember what one of the two things might be? No, people are thinking of it. They haven't got the courage to say it. The first was God appeared to Peter and showed Peter you didn't have to become a Jew to become a Christian. 
You didn't have to become a Jew to be saved. Understand how massive this was. He used a a Roman centurion called Cornelius and he explained to Peter, he doesn't have to get circumcised. Do you realise how big a stumbling block that was to men becoming becoming Jews? It it was massive. That's why you read in the Bible about God-fearers. People who say, I know it's right, but I'm not taking that step. And even more than that, he said, all those laws of the Old Testament, no. You you you, You can keep eating pork crackling. You can keep eating whatever's in those sausages tonight after, after church. It doesn't matter. All those laws don't apply anymore. This was massive, but why it was massive is it made Peter and the first Jewish Christians realise this is for everyone. Everyone can become a Christian and we don't need to put stumbling blocks in their way. But then something even bigger happened. He wants to have a go at what the next, the even bigger thing that changed everything. Paul got converted. God has a wonderful sense of humour. The man who is the most Jewish man who's ever lived, the Jew of Jews, the man who led the persecution, he stood there, he didn't want to get his hands dirty throwing stones at Stephen. He said, I'll hold your cloaks so you can throw stones at Stephen. And God says, appears to him on the road to Damascus, introduces him to Jesus, brings him to faith in Jesus, and then says, and you are going to lead the charge of taking the gospel to the nations. So that's where we're at as we come to Acts chapter 13. Things are about to go off. Everything is ready. That's where we're picking up the story. Uh, in the first half of the book, gospel has gone to Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria. Peter was the star. Peter fades away now. Paul becomes the focus because this is about the gospel to the world. That has been a very long introduction to get us back up to speed. You know when you're watching one of those TV shows and you think, Oh, that we're still in last week's episode. Yeah, yeah, well, well, now shake yourself off. Come with me to Acts chapter 13. And I challenge you, if you are a Christian, I challenge you to not get fired up and excited by what God does in the second half of the book of Acts. So come with me. The first three verses, I've called it sent by God. So we pick up the story in a place called Antioch. I've got a map. See up there, that's the map of the Mediterranean. If you look up there, Antioch was there up where Syria and Lebanon are today, a bit below Turkey, above modern-day Israel. So they're in a place called Antioch, a church has grown up. Paul and Barnabas, two of the leaders of this church, uh, just imagine if you were there as a part of this church. You've got five prophets and teachers, and two of them are the two most famous preachers in history, Paul and Barnabas. But like all good things, it comes to an end because God says, I've got a different plan for Paul and Barnabas. Come with me, look at verse 2. The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work I've called them to. Now, we immediately get caught in the weeds, and this happens in the book of Acts. We think, how did the Holy Spirit say that to them? Was it on the PowerPoint? Was it, you know, did everyone get convicted of the truth? Did they all feel it in their hearts? We just don't know. We don't know how God did that at this time, but whatever happened, they all understood we have to send Paul and Barnabas out. It's really important to remember this isn't saying that is how God will work for every decision we make during our lives. The the Bible is very clear. More often, we've got God's word, we've got wisdom, we've got one another to encourage us and help us make wise decisions. We shouldn't expect the Holy Spirit to, uh, to appear in some way and tell us every decision we have to make. But here at this vital moment, God was saying, Barnabas and Paul need to go and tell the world about Jesus. And here, so what do they do? They're convicted it's God's will. They lay hands on them. 
they pray for them and they send them on their way. I think lots of people skip over this to get to the exciting bits that come later. I think this is actually a wonderful moment. This is one of the most beautiful moments in the Bible, I think. Because there's nothing sadder than someone leaving church for bad reasons, is there? There's nothing sadder than when we have to farewell someone because there's been ungodliness or because uh, there's been a fight that can't be restored or things like that. There's, there's nothing worse than that. On the other hand, there is nothing more magical, nothing more beautiful than sending people out for good reasons. I actually think that is the sign of a healthy church, that it sends people out. Like in a few months, we are going to probably here lay our hands on Lama and send him out to Vietnam to tell people about Jesus. Now here, Lama was a part of this congregation. And we would love to still have Lama here with us, wouldn't we? It'd be beautiful to have Lama still here with us. But we say, no, but it's even more beautiful to send him. To tell it, just like we've done when we laid hands on the McDowells from our Carlton congregation and sent them to Paraguay. Or when we laid hands on the newbies from here at Bexley North and sent them to, to the Philippines. Or, or the Blouses to Argentina. As hard as it is to let people go. Wouldn't it be wonderful to have all those people here with us every Sunday encouraging us. For we say it's better to send them to share the gospel with others. So the blessing of their church, Paul and Barnabas head off from Antioch and they sail to Cyprus. Anyone here ever been to Cyprus? One person's been to Cyprus. There you go. I, I, across the bridge, I hadn't met someone who'd been to Cyprus. So there you go. But or at least no one who admitted they'd been to Cyprus. So that's the first place they go. And I've called it a mission of judgment and grace. This is verses 4 to 12. Wherever they went, Paul and Barnabas first went to the synagogue. So they, started, they always started preaching to the Jews. That's because the gospel is first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. They said, we want to give you your chance to come to know your saviour, but then they would share Jesus with everyone. So they get to a place called Paphos, if you look there, that's where the story focuses in on two individuals. So the first is a guy called Sergius Paulus, and he's like the governor. I love how it says there, he was an intelligent man. I'm not quite certain why it feels the need to tell us he was an intelligent man, because in fact, some of the smartest people in the world are Christians, and some of the smartest people in the world are not Christians, and some of the not smartest are Christians, and some of the not smartest are, are not Christians. It, intelligence doesn't decide whether someone's going to be a Christian or not. Uh, but here, I think it's making the point, he's smart enough to know I want to listen to what these guys have to say. Straight away, though, there was opposition. And there was a guy there who was a Jewish false prophet, and his name was Bar-Jesus. Talk about the wrongest name for someone in history. The son of Jesus is his name, the son of salvation. And he doesn't live up to his name because he's also called Elimas or the sorcerer. And he is determined to stop Sergius hearing about Jesus and being saved. Paul could not let that happen. Look at verse 9. It says, Then Saul, also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, stared straight at the sorcerer and said, You son of the devil. It's a nice way to greet someone, isn't it? You son of the devil, full of all deceit and all fraud, enemy of all righteousness, won't you ever stop perverting the straight paths of the Lord? It's powerful stuff. But it gets even more. He doesn't just verbally condemn him. Here's something that's absolutely amazing in the New Testament. If you know your New Testament, just about every miracle Jesus and then the apostles do is what I would call a positive miracle. They make blind people see. They make lame people walk. Here, 
is a miracle of judgment. Instead of making a blind man see, he makes this seeing man blind. So why such a strong word? Why such an act of judgment? It's because this man was stopping someone hearing about Jesus. There is no worse thing a person can do than stop someone hearing about Jesus. Because that is stopping someone finding salvation. It's like shutting the fire exits on a burning building and putting things in front of them so people can't be saved. That's why Paul calls him a son of the devil. Sometimes Christians get, get, get caught up and, and overemphasize the devil and they sort of think every time something bad happens, that's the devil's work and, and so forth. The, the devil's chief work, what he lives to do, is lead people away from faith in Christ, take people away from salvation. Sometimes he does it through the occult, like this sorcerer in Cyprus. More often, he does it through the mundane things of life. What do you reckon Satan's biggest weapons are today in modern-day Sydney, in Bexley North? I reckon his biggest weapons are busyness, technology, sport, money, what our family or friends think of us. Satan uses all those things to just encourage us away from Jesus. That's the devil's work. Sometimes, though, the devil does it through people, like he did here with this guy, Elimas. People who come into the church and try to seed doubt, try to throw people's faith into doubt, but try to create division and lead people away. That's the devil's work. But here, it's wonderful. As soon as Paul removes the distraction, this intelligent man, Sergius, I just like saying that, this intelligent man considers the claims of Jesus and he believes and he's saved. It's a wonderful moment. I want you to, to grasp how massive this is. Is there anyone here from a Jewish background? There's one person in our congregation at Carlton who's a converted Jewish person. But the rest of us, this is the start of us. See, even Cornelius before this was already a God-fearer. He'd already decided there was a, an Old Testament God and the one true God who was called Yahweh and wrote the Bible. But this is the first person to come from nowhere and become a Christian. This is a wonderful moment. But it also reminds us, wherever the gospel is preached, there will be opposition. So wherever the gospel is preached, it will be a word of salvation to people who listen, but it will also be a word of judgment to people who oppose it. Well, let's move on. Acts only gives us a highlights package. We know from other books of the Bible that lots of people became Christians in Cyprus because they had to go there and, and, and set up churches and go back and make sure it all worked and everything. We don't hear about any of that. Now the story moves on. I'm going to go through this massive number of verses that Jenny read for us before very quickly. Don't worry, I'm not spending the same amount of time as I've done on the others. So I've called this God's work of salvation from verse 13. But flick along with me. Uh, from Cyprus, I'll go back to my map. They sailed from Cyprus up to what we would call Turkey. And just to confuse everyone, the place they went to there was called Antioch. But it's a different Antioch to where they'd come from. So they weren't going home. That was Antioch over in Syria. This is Antioch in a place called Pisidia. Uh, and when they went there, what did they do? They did exactly the same thing they did wherever they went. They went to the synagogue first. And then after the Bible readings, from what we would call the Old Testament, Paul was asked if he had a word of encouragement to share. Have you ever said something and then instantly regretted saying it? I think the rabbi at this synagogue instantly regretted this. He, sometimes we have an open mic. We've done it here at 4.30, but sometimes we have an open mic at some of our services and sometimes a person takes the microphone and I think, oh, we're going to be here for an hour. Well, I think they looked here and they thought, Paul was a respected rabbi. He was well known. They thought, you, you'll have a word of encouragement. 
But once he got, they didn't have microphones, but once he got the microphone, they would have regretted it because you know what he did? He preached the gospel. And so it's a really long speech. Just flick through from verse 16 to 41 is where the speech goes. And we haven't got time to read it in detail. I want you to go home and read it again and just see how he presents the gospel. But his main point is really simple. He says to these people, hey, you know that book you read every time you meet here in the synagogue? You know that law you've got from Moses with all, you know, all that history of Israel? You know those prophets you read like Isaiah? Well, the one they're all pointing to has come. He says, the one who fulfills all the promises has come. Let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about the promised one, the Christ, the saviour you've been waiting for. And then he tells them, you, as in the Jewish people, you killed Jesus, but God has raised him from the dead. And now he offers forgiveness to you. And he offers forgiveness to anyone who will listen and believe in him. Look at how he finishes it off. This is one of the great summaries of the gospel. Verse 38. If you're an underliner, I'd underline this, but I don't write in my Bible. But look at verse 38. He says, Therefore, let it be known to you, brothers, that through this man, he's talking about Jesus, forgiveness of sins is being proclaimed to you. And everyone who believes in him is justified from everything you could not be justified from through the law of Moses. Isn't that just a wonderful capturing of the Christian message believe in Jesus and you can be forgiven remember from our studies in Romans last year that word justified it means to be declared innocent by God and he says not because you've earned it not because you've kept God's law you see what he even says there you couldn't keep the law of Moses it couldn't make you innocent God does through Jesus who died to pay for your sin that is the message Paul preached from the beginning that is the message we I pray you have heard and believed and that is the message we want to share with others and what's wonderful is just like us many of the people there did believe and lots of other people even if they didn't believe yet they were intrigued they were interested preachers favorite verse in the bible is verse 42 Look at verse 42 says that lots of people were begging them to come back and tell them more that's every preacher's dream phil i know you've already spoken for 25 minutes but keep talking you know <laughs> that is every preacher's dream and so the following Sabbath, it says the whole town almost showed up to listen. Now at this moment, we're thinking this mission thing is easy. Imagine if Lama read this. He thought, oh, I'm just going to go to Vietnam and they're all just going to become Christians. And, you know, th this missionary journey is just one success after another. It's just on and on. And, and, but then something happened. And something happened wherever they went, preached the gospel. It happened in Cyprus. Now it happens in Antioch. Opposition rose up persecution starts on this occasion it was the Jews obviously the ones who hadn't believed and they get jealous and they start yelling insults at Paul and Barnabas it's interesting though Paul and Barnabas aren't shocked they're not put off their game because they know actually this is part of God's plan look at verse 46 it says then Paul and Barnabas boldly said it was necessary that God's message be spoken to you first but since you reject it and consider yourselves unworthy of eternal life we now turn to the Gentiles See what he's saying? He's saying, we've given you your chance. Don't blame us. Don't blame God. You've heard about Jesus. When you reject him, it's a, it's, a, it's a terrifying line, he says there. You consider yourself unworthy of eternal life. You've had your chance, he says, but you've decided to ignore it. So now we're going to share it with other people. Don't blame God, is his point. And so here he turns to the Gentiles 
And remember I said how exciting it was when Sergius Paulus became a Christian? Well, here is the first time there was a widespread conversion of non-Jews. Look at how he describes it. Look at verse 48. It says, When the Gentiles heard this, they rejoiced and glorified the message of the Lord and all who had been appointed to eternal life believed. I just keep stressing this. This is us. This is the beginning of our story. This is Gentiles like us, not just Cornelius, not just Sergius. This is crowds like us finding salvation. This is when the doors were thrown open and God said, anyone come in. But I just want to focus for a second on what he says there in verse 48. Because I think if we were writing verse 48, we would write it and say, and all those who were convinced about the truth about Jesus believed. Or even in the light of what he said earlier, all those who considered themselves worthy of eternal life believed. He doesn't say that. What does he say? Read it again. He says, and all who had been appointed to eternal life believed. What does that mean? This is that wonderful truth of the Bible that we call the doctrine of predestination. Where the Bible says, on the one hand, we are 100% responsible for the decision we make about Jesus. Those people who rejected the gospel, they are responsible for that. These Gentiles chose to believe the gospel. They made the decision. But at the same time, God was at work. God had appointed them. God was in control. Before the beginning of time, God had set his mind on these people. Now, modern minds hear that and often complain. How does that work? Doesn't that make me a robot? You know, if it's all God's work, what does it matter? But the Bible is really, really clear in passages like this one. We are responsible for our decisions. If we reject Jesus, that's our decision. If we believe in Jesus, that's our decision. But overarching it all, God is in control and God is at work. He predestines or elects those he will save. In my experience, people struggle with this when they first become a Christian. But then over time, they realise this just has to be true. Because over time, you realise, I would never have put my faith in Jesus if God had not been at work in me. I would never have put my faith in Jesus if God had not been at work by his spirit. We are responsible, but God is in control. Now, please understand this correctly, because this throws some people, they worry, what if I'm not appointed? I've had people come to me after church when this has come up in the Bible and said, but what if I'm not appointed to eternal life? How do I know I'm appointed by God? Well, the Bible never encourages that sort of thinking. God's word says, if you believe in Jesus and you trust in him as your Lord and Saviour and you're persevering in your faith, you are one of God's chosen people. Take comfort in that. The sign of God's choice, the sign of God's election is that you trust in Jesus. That's the sign. And do you notice how Paul and Barnabas didn't wander around saying, that person looks like they'd make a really good Christian, we'll preach the gospel to them. Or that person has a hidden tattoo on their arm that tells us they're one of God. They just preached the gospel to everyone. They had no idea. They just preached the gospel to everyone. They told everyone about Jesus. And then as people responded... They just praised God that he had worked in those people. And that's what I want us to take away from the start of this series in the second half of Acts. We're going to be looking at it over the next eight or nine weeks, Josh. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, God has given us, his people, a mission. That is what Paul and Barnabas understood. God has given us a mission to share Jesus and his offer of forgiveness with everyone. It's not our job to discriminate. 
The, the gospel is for Jew and Gentile. It is for male and female. Whatever, whatever else divides humanity doesn't matter compared to the gospel. It's not our job to discriminate. It's our job to tell everyone about Jesus. And then God will use our faithful sharing of the gospel to save a people for his very own. So my prayer for us as we start the book of Acts, besides what I said at the start, that we'll be excited about what God has done and what he's doing. My prayer is that God might use my words, that he might use your words, that he might use all of our faithful witness in exactly the same way that he used Paul and Barnabas. And I'm going to pray that he would do that. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the book of Acts. We thank you that it shows us that the gospel is for all people. And we thank you for these first non-Jews who became Christians and showed us that the gospel is for everyone. And so we pray that we would understand that and that you might use our sometimes feeble words and our faithful witness to see people come and find the forgiveness and eternal life that we have come to know. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.